The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Wednesday, July 13th, 2022 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. John Bolton, mustachioed impresario of regime change scenario, was on CNN yesterday making the case that while Trump did some terrible things, it wasn't actually a coup. Because, Bolton's thinking went, he wasn't really trying that hard. Host Jake Tapper rebutted. I don't know that I agree with you, to be, to be uh, fair, with all due respect. Uh, one doesn't have to be brilliant to attempt a coup. Uh, I disagree with that. As somebody who has helped plan coup d'etat, yeah. not here, but, you know, other places, uh, it takes a lot of work. And that's not what he did. Listen, mister, if you're going to have a coup just by hoping for a coup or wishing for a coup, you got another thing coming. And that thing's not a coup. Let's get this nose to the coup grindstone. The coup's not going to plot itself. Let's get out there and give it some coup oomph. Interesting admission. Several U.S. frenemies and adversaries from Venezuela to Turkey said, us, he's talking about us. He did this against us. He copped to cooing. But I was more struck by the overall point. Donald Trump couldn't have been planning a coup because that would require planning. Writing The Atlantic a couple weeks ago, Graham Wood, he was on the show two days ago, said a similar thing. He said a coup, and it was a coup by Wood's estimation, failed because of, quote, Trump's incredible laziness and complete aversion to personal risk. And then he said, quote, Trump himself, the one plotter whose vigorous participation was absolutely necessary, seems to have spent most of that day watching TV and ignoring texts. One more Graham Wood quote. I see a lazy bastard who could not believe his luck that he had yet again managed to get others to do what he dared not do himself. John Bolton wants to take those facts and exonerate Trump on the specific coup charge. No one so unserious could seriously be said to be plotting a coup. What Wood doesn't have a recommendation for the Justice Department. He's just analyzing why the coup could be thought of today as something less than a coup. I think of the charge of attempted murder. Even if you're blindfolded and stubbornly refuse to take off the blindfold, but still grab a gun and fire a shot in anger across the field... Yeah, the blindfold greatly decreases your chances of killing anyone. It doesn't make you less of an attempted murderer. Or if you hire a hitman, then try to wriggle out of paying him. That would be very Trump-like. Or the classic baby with the bayonet. Charlie Sykes talks about the clown with the flamethrower. The point being at the end of the day, he still is a flamethrower. But I like the baby with the bayonet. It's more apt. Clowns have fine overall strength. They have dexterity. They've shown they can operate complex machinery. The baby with the bayonet is so fundamentally unable to wield it, it doesn't seem possible. And just as you're saying that, you've got a gaping flesh wound and your junior associate won't lend you his binky to stanch the bleeding. Anyway, Trump doesn't look great in any of the formulations. He's either too lazy, too stupid, too incompetent, too crazy, or too cowardly. And to me, these seem like searing indictments of a human. To this particular human, they are all legal strategies should that indictment actually come. On the show today, we have a spiel, we have names, we have the news, and we have names in the news. But first... 
The ruling in the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin wasn't just a guns rights case. It was a warning as to how the Supreme Court will be ruling in the years to come. So says my next guest, UCLA Law School's Adam Winkler, who sees Bruin not as the end of a movement towards a conservative court, but as a beginning. Adam Winkler, up next. In New York, you used to have to show proper cause. In Maryland, it was good and substantial reason. In New Jersey, a justifiable need. No more after the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association v. Bruin ruling. States may no longer use as a requirement for granting a license the idea of, well, does the citizen need a gun license. To a certain extent, this makes sense if you look at the Second Amendment as as much a right as the rights in the First Amendment. We don't say, do you need free speech? But it is a huge change. It affects 80 million people or a quarter of us. And joining us to talk about what standards there can be, what laws the states can write that pass constitutional muster is Adam Winkler. He's the Connell Professor of Law at UCLA. He's also the author of Gunfight, The Battle Over the Right to Bear Arms in America. Professor Winkler, welcome to The Gist. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Absolutely. So the ruling came down. You, unlike unlike some rulings, it wasn't leaked beforehand, but there was certainly a lot of indication that the Supreme Court would rule in the direction that they did. And then states, eight states at least, were asked to or made to rewrite their laws. And they had some choices. I don't know if they, maybe they literally consulted you, but can you give us a a lay of the land of the different choices that different states made after rewriting their gun laws when the Supreme Court told them they couldn't keep doing what they had been doing? Well, we're seeing this happen in two different ways, Mike. We're seeing states Um, make clear that there are still eligibility criteria for getting a concealed carry permit. So for instance, in California, the attorney general issued a statement to law enforcement officers who are responsible for uh, awarding these concealed carry permits that under California law, you still need to prove that you have good moral character in order to get a concealed carry permit. And that good moral character requirement could turn out be equally discretionary as a proper cause permitting eligibility uh, criterion like New York had. Um, So one area we're seeing is firming up existing eligibility criteria. The other thing we're seeing is that states are restricting what they call sensitive places. The Supreme Court said that although you have a right to carry a firearm in public, um, the court suggested that Guns can be prohibited from so-called sensitive places. And while the court didn't make crystal clear exactly what counts as a sensitive place where guns are not allowed, it gave some examples, government buildings, schools, um, polling places. Um, And so uh, we're seeing states like New York basically announce that public transportation is now considered a sensitive place. And in a city like New York City, for instance, if you can't carry your gun on public transportation, that's a pretty significant uh, restriction on your ability to carry a gun. 
Right. And you can't in New York State, you can't carry it in Times Square. You can't carry it now in zoos, libraries, playgrounds, healthcare facilities. So there, there are quite a number of sensitive places. However, as I'm sure you know, there was a move to say, why don't we just define our whole city as a sensitive place? Okay, we won't be that uh inelegant about it. We'll say anything with any census tract that's over 10,000 people, which pretty much is all of New York City except some parts of Staten Island. Would that have flown if they tried to be that aggressive? Well, I think, Mike, it's not really clear exactly what's going to fly. I think we're really at the stage of conceptualizing some new um, airplanes and trying to figure out whether they're going to fly or not. This Bruin case by the by the Supreme Court is not the end of the battle over concealed carry, but really just the beginning. And we're, we're not going to see states like California and New York and Massachusetts simply throw up their hands and say, OK, we surrender Supreme Court. We'll allow people to carry guns on the streets the way people in Texas are allowed to carry guns on the streets. Instead, we're going to see those states fight vigorously to try to keep the number of guns on city streets low. And many of these states might be inspired a little bit, Mike, by the battle against abortion rights. And the way we saw so many Southern states and Midwestern states um, continue to pass laws restricting abortion access despite Roe versus Wade being on the books. And it, we had, you know, 40 years of litigation of efforts to try to restrict abortion and the courts coming in and smacking down some of those efforts, allowing some of those efforts to stand. I think that's what we can expect to see uh, in the Supreme Court on the gun issue in, in the years coming forward, um, that there's going to be efforts to sort of identify the loopholes in the court's reasoning or uh, the ambiguities in the language to try to expand the ability of the government to regulate um, and really force the Supreme Court's hand. And it's going to take years for this all to, to be sorted out. Um, and, and you mentioned New York's very extensive restrictions on guns in sensitive places a minute ago, Mike. And if you think about um, someone's going to challenge some of those uh, some of those restrictions, Maybe some of them will be struck down, but then the state's going to come back and adopt uh, another standard that's going to be as vigorous as possible. And there's really no punishment to the state. Sometimes they might lose attorney's fees and have to pay the other side's attorney's fees uh, for violating constitutional rights. Um, but, you know, that's not something that any particular politician feels in their own pocketbook. And so uh, I think we're going to see uh, continued efforts um, uh, and continued resistance to the Supreme Court's decision by these states. I was thinking about one of the states that is always listed as a may carry state. In other words, we may give you a permit. You, we may not. The default is not what is true in 43 states, a sh shall carry state. Thinking of the state of Connecticut, because I found it, they have pretty aggressive gun laws. And I found it interesting that the court ruling said that Connecticut did not fall under Bruin. It was exempted because of how Connecticut had constructed their state laws. And I further wondered, I wonder if this could be a model for other states. So what do you know about Connecticut's laws? Did they somehow do it right or back into a possible solution for other states? 
Well, I think that my understanding of Connecticut, and I could be wrong about this, Mike, so take it with a grain of salt, but my understanding was that they have a kind of May issue permitting scheme, but as a matter of policy, it operates as a shall issue regime, whereas they don't really exercise that discretion. Um, But I, I do think, and one of the things that's important, Mike, to think about this Bruin case is it's not really just about concealed carry. I think what the Supreme Court has signaled in this case is that it's going to be looking skeptically uh, upon a number of different kinds of gun safety regulations. And what we're likely to see in years to come are not just battles over concealed carry permits uh, and sensitive places, but also battles over things like bans on military-style rifles or bans on high-capacity magazines. Um, I I think this case really is a a signal that the Supreme Court is now prepared to really dig into the Second Amendment uh, and and start to declare laws unconstitutional. And I don't think they're going to declare all laws unconstitutional. That would be ridiculous. But I do think that there's a number of laws that have been passed in blue states, like assault weapons bans, like high-capacity magazine bans, that are likely to run afoul of this new Supreme Court. If there is, I know the court sometimes takes into account um, real world phenomena and the actual impact of their rulings. I mean, they look at this in death penalty cases and we're even debating the idea about including this phenomenon when it comes to when it came to um, children or people under uh, 18 getting the death penalty. But do you think with this court, with these the justices on this court, they might ever look at the consequences of the ruling that they gave in Bruin and say, well, we didn't expect there to be so much more, let's say, carnage in LA that these social scientists have directly connected to the ruling we made. Is that a possibility that they'd look at evidence like that? No. Looking at evidence, why, why would judges do that? Well, and I say no with such certainty because there's a part of the Supreme Court's opinion that makes the point that we're not going to look at that kind of evidence. You know, traditionally, Mike, we say that constitutional rights are not absolute, that generally you have a right to free speech, but if the government has sufficiently strong reasons to limit your speech and does so in a way that's as narrow as possible, then generally it's okay to restrict speech. Um, You can stop someone from falsely shouting fire in a crowded theater, not because it's not speech, but because the government has especially good reasons to protect people from the public safety danger that comes from falsely shouting fire in a crowded theater. But the Supreme Court in the Bruin case has said, we're not going to treat the Second Amendment in that way, that the Second Amendment has the scope that it had when it was originally adopted, and we are not going to allow judges to do what we do in all the other constitutional rights cases, which is uh, apply a kind of balancing test that will uh, allow government some leeway to regulate when the need really arises. Um, The court said specifically we're not going to do that in the Second Amendment, that we have to stick to the historical understanding of the Second Amendment regardless of what the data show. And I think they were very purposeful in doing that and in the context of the Second Amendment because we all know that there's going to be studies now that there's more funding going into gun violence prevention research, more studies that are going to show that um, that these policies, the sort of super liberal gun policies that we have, I should say super permissive gun policies that we have, uh, do lead to uh, increases in violent crime and do lead to increases in gun violence and suicide and, and accidental shootings as well. 
So are you saying that the court has found an even more absolute right in the Second Amendment than it has found in the First Amendment, rights to speech, press, assembly, and so forth? Absolutely, Mike. In all of those other areas of law, we, I've been teaching this stuff for 20-something years at UCLA Law School. You say, okay, here's the right of free speech. What does it cover? And then we talk about, well, if government wants to restrict speech, it can do so if it has a compelling governmental interest and the law is narrowly tailored to achieve that. You know, for instance, uh, in for, you have a right to political speech, but you cannot make political speeches in a polling place. Right. But the court has disabled government from making that argument that, hey, you know what, this is a right, but we need to restrict it in this limited way because of the public safety dangers from ha- that come from having a firearm in this way. So a second ago, you mentioned it's not just concealed carry that's at stake or in play. It's, for instance, entire categories of weapons, maybe not all weapons, but an AR-15 or an AK-47, which was once uh, eligible to be banned by a municipality, maybe you think the court will uh, strike down such eligibility. And it's interesting because, you know, just last week, for obvious reasons, I was looking at a case that was denied cert, so it didn't quite get heard by the Supreme Court, which was Freedman versus City of Highland Park. And Highland Park did ban um, what they called assault weapons or Um, semi-automatic weapons. And there, in the New York Times coverage, when they talked about the Supreme Court's refusal refusal to hear the Second Amendment challenge in uh, 2015, quote, the justices don't reveal their reasons for denying review, but one thing is clear, said Adam Winkler, a law professor at UCLA, the justices certainly aren't eager to take up a Second Amendment case these days. My, what a difference seven years makes. And why? Just because that the two dissenting justices at the time gained four like-minded colleagues? Well, absolutely. That's exactly what's happened. I mean, look, the 2016 election was a transformative moment in American politics and American constitutional law. Um, The appointment by Donald Trump of three justices to the Supreme Court has completely changed the Supreme Court. And, um, you know, in 2015, you could write with great confidence that the Supreme Court is not about to overturn Roe versus Wade. You could write with extreme confidence that the Supreme Court is not looking to expand gun rights at this time. The court had been offered many opportunities to expand on the Heller case and had just turned each one of those uh, opportunities away, including the Highland Park case that dealing with the ban on assault weapons. Um, notable, of course, that we just had a mass shooting in Highland Park, Illinois, using military-style assault weapons, a weapon that would have been banned uh, under the old Highland Park regulations, um, uh, 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 under the uh, Highland Park regulations that were involved in that case. Um, uh, of course, that doesn't necessarily stop you from getting a gun, right? You have, your guns do yes. transfer across state lines, and they're pretty mobile and pretty easy to import and export across state lines. So, um, uh, uh, so the court really has changed. And these three new justices have ushered in a whole new era of conservative judicial activism that we're seeing in the gun rights space and the privacy rights space. And we're going to see it in the gay rights space. Next year, the court's going to overturn race-based affirmative action, almost certainly. Um, they've already cut back on the ability of the EPA to regulate uh, for climate change. So uh, uh, yeah, I mean, a lot's changed since 2015, uh, uh, a lot in American politics and in American law. So 
Brett Stevens wrote a pretty um, attention-grabbing op-ed that for us to really attack the gun issue, we have to repeal the Second Amendment. And I didn't buy it at the time. I thought it was a great kind of column that uh, a columnist writes as a provocation. Um, I wonder if you buy it at all, if you buy it more than when I'm sure you read it the first time, or do you think that with uh, our current understanding or the court's current interpretation and understanding of the Second Amendment, is effective gun control still possible? Well, I mean, if effective gun control requires repealing the Second Amendment, um, I think it's not possible if that's what's required, because uh, we're not going to repeal the Second Amendment. That is not a possible uh, political outcome right now. You have about 40 states in the nation that are very much committed to the Second Amendment and want, if anything, to expand gun protections, not expand gun safety laws. Um, so there's no way that that gets, uh, that gets adopted. And I also think, Mike, it sort of kind of misunderstands the nature of gun politics in America. You mentioned the Heller case was just decided 14 years ago in 2008. That was the first time the Supreme Court clearly held that the Second Amendment protected an individual right to bear arms and cast some doubt on gun safety laws. Well, that was in 2008. Well, Mike, I'm sure you remember in 2007, we still had a big gun safety problem. Um, and we still had a very liberal concealed carry policies in, uh, at that time, over 30 states. Um, we've seen 25 states approximately adopt just over the last five to 10 years permitless concealed carry as a matter of legislative reform. Gun politics in America and hostility to gun safety laws are not simply because we have the Second Amendment in the Constitution. It's because we have a very strong political movement for guns and against gun safety laws in America that's been remarkably successful at the state level and keeps reforming state laws to make our laws looser. Get rid of the Second Amendment today. You still have 40 states that are going to have extremely permissive gun laws and probably still have the remaining outlier states like California and New York, which we say have the most restrictive gun laws in the country. But we should remember they're not restrictive gun laws. They're restrictive gun laws compared to Texas, but compared to England yeah. or Japan or any other industrialized nation, California has the loosest gun laws in the world, uh, or at least in the industrialized world. So I think that even if you got rid of the Second Amendment, America's gun problem would still be with us. We'd still have 400 million guns and gun politics would still be very, very powerful. Yeah, you're right. Heller, 2008 and 2007, we still had mass killings. In fact, that was the year of the Virginia Tech killing, which was the deadliest mass killing in U.S. history. Mass killings are atypical. But you would think if there was ever a time to tread lightly on restricting gun restrictions, it would be right after that. But that was not the time because of the uh, ideological interpretations of the court at that moment. That's right. And look, how long was it after we had these crazy mass shootings that we just had uh, in uh, in Uvalde and in Buffalo? And two weeks later, the Supreme Court issues this opinion uh, in the Bruin case. So clearly mass shootings are not going to stop the court from expanding Second Amendment rights. Um, And in fact, may even actually encourage them 
to span, expand gun rights. You know, one of the things, Mike, that I've learned in my study of gun laws over the law and gun politics over the last 10 years or so has been that, you know, there's two very different ways of approaching this problem in America. There's half of Americans or maybe roughly half of Americans believe that the way to reduce gun violence is to restrict access to guns. And another half of Americans roughly believe that the way to reduce gun violence is to increase access to guns. And as long as you have that fundamental disagreement about whether access to guns is a net positive or a net negative, it's very, very difficult to move forward on reform. There's no one out there who thinks falsely shouting fire in a crowded theater is the way to reduce, uh, to enhance public safety, right? So there's no one fighting for that. But in the gun world, you know, that's the attitude. More guns equals less crime. Adam Winkler is the Connell Professor of Law at UCLA School of Law, author of Gunfight, The Battle Over the Right to Bear Arms in America. Professor, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Always appreciate it, Mike, and uh, always a big fan. And now the spiel, and it's time for Names in the News. 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 news. All right. First name in the News, Gotabaya Rajapaksa. Good name, or rather someone who sullied his good name. The president of Sri Lanka, sorry, former president of Sri Lanka. Let's see what's up with Gotabaya Rajapaksa who blundered and burgled his way into a severe economic downturn for his country. What's new, Gotabaya Rajapaksa? Sri Lanka's president, Gotabaya Rajapaksa, and his wife have fled the country on a military jet and flown to the nearby Maldives. Fled the country, but not just fled. I saw this phrasing in a number of outlets. I'll quote the dispatch. Embattled Sri Lankan president, Gotabaya Rajapaksa, successfully fled to the Maldives yesterday. Success. There are different kinds of success. Success in business, success in love, the old, I may not have a fancy mansion or a bunch of expensive cars, but I'm successful in ways you'll never be. I have the love of those who respect me and 100,000 Tesla options at a strike price of 650. But I'll tell you, the least successful kinds of success, the lowest rung of success, is when success successfully pairs itself with fled It was successful, by the way, because he was blocked from exiting at the airport a few times. This all after swarms of protesters stormed the presidential palace and jumped in the presidential pool. Realize, this is an island nation. When they're swimming in your pool, you know it's just a statement that your tenure was less than successful. Next name in the news. Names in the news. Plenty of names in the British news. They're running for the leadership of the Conservative Party. This will be the person who'll move into 10 Downing Street once Boris Johnson exits. But before we hear the names of those who are running, let's hear Bloomberg relaying some of the household names who have declined to run. We've lost a few of the candidates along the way. The Transport Secretary Grant Shapps, uh, the former Chancellor and Health Secretary Sajid Javid. And you may never have heard of him, but Raymond Shishti is not on the starting line. I actually haven't heard of the chap, chaps, chap, chap, that ship, that, that guy either. Javid was a big name, but let's move on to a couple of the other names who will not be named party leader. 
Two candidates will be eliminated, Jeremy Hunt and Nadim Zahawi. Now, maybe you could tell by the names of those who are in the running, and if not, you could tell by the names of those left, including top vote-getter thus far, Rishi Sunak, not to mention Suellen Braverman and Kemi, short for Alu Kemi Alufunto Badenoch, that half the candidates are what we here in America would refer to as people of color. In Britain, they're BAMI or BME, Black Asian Minority Ethnic Heritage. Braverman was born to parents who emigrated to Britain in the 60s from Kenya and Mauritius, respectively. They're both from the subcontinent of Asia originally. Badenoch's family, Nigerian. Javid is the son of Punjabi immigrants. What's going on? It is not the case that British conservative voters are so much more diverse than U.S. conservative or Republican voters. In the last general election there, Labour won the vote of 64% of all black and minority ethnic voters, while 20% voted for the conservatives, 12% for the liberal Democrats, that according to Ipsos. In the U.S., 91% of black voters went for Democrats, 66% of Hispanic voters. So the total number was about the same as Labour and the liberal Democrats combined. For. In the 2016 Republican primary, those participants in the party used to brag that their candidates featuring Marco Rubio, Ted Cruz, Ben Carson, was more diverse than the Democrats. That was when Hillary Clinton was running against Bernie Sanders and, for a second there, Martin O'Malley and Virginia Senator James Webb. But Trump was the clear favorite. Other purportedly strong candidates were Jeb Bush, John Kasich, and Cruz who always played down his Latino roots. My analysis is that Republicans, U.S. Republicans, the leaders, the elites, the base, were never likely to have a true field of black and brown candidates who could attain prominent positions, whereas in the U.K., it is quite likely that a brown person, as they say, will win. It's happened before. It will happen again in Europe. In Ireland, Leo Varadkar was TSOC, you know, PM, the current head of Portugal, or the prime minister of Portugal, Antonio Costa's father, was a famous writer from India. The rest of the G20 nations, their conservative parties are more attractive to their non-white population than is our conservative slash Republican party. And this is why I say, don't be surprised if an Indo-European is the next British prime minister and the next name in the news, names in the news, is that breathtaking telescope, the Webb, named after James Webb, different James Webb than I mentioned is running against Hillary. As we learned yesterday, the Webb, it is not just brilliant, it is a searing indictment against the coagulated monkey pus served up for years by the Hubble. That's the former low orbit telescope with which I just can't. But here's the name that I think of when I think of the Webb, and I think of the Hubble, it's Webb Hubble. Webb Hubble, remember him? A friend of Bill, a friend of Hillary, who came to DC from Arkansas with them, served in the Justice Department, and then got served up by the Justice Department, or at least the special counsel, as an outgrowth of the Whitewater investigation. Good afternoon. Today, a federal grand jury in the District of Columbia returned a 10-count indictment against Webster, Hubble, and others, charging conspiracy to violate the internal revenue laws, tax evasion, impairing and impeding the due administration of the IRS, and mail fraud. 
That was Charles Balcali, independent council spokesperson. Webster Hubble, who he mentioned, was more colloquially known as, well, here's his lawyer. Webb Hubble, for the last 18 months, has been investigated by that office for many different things. Webb Hubble. All of these references to the Webb and to the Hubble brought me back to those halcyon days when presidential misbehavior was of the minor land deal variety, which could possibly net the current office holder's wife, I don't know, 25 grand. But I cannot hear of the Webb and the Hubble, often said as Webb Hubble, and I can't hear that without thinking of those days. I would like to thank the 90s for that. There is one benefit to all this new talk of this new web Hubble, the unindicted telescopes, who offer a clarity of vision that Ken Starr never could. It used to be that when you Googled web Hubble, you had a Wikipedia page for web Hubble, and then, like a link or two down, very prominent, was a site claiming that web Hubble is Chelsea Clinton's actual father. He's not. Or, let's just say, there is less evidence for that than life in star cluster SMACS 0723. But there it was. I was offended. I was offended on Chelsea's behalf, on old Webb's behalf, and on the behalf of the truth. But now the new Webb Hubble, at least that word combo, has taken over the older Webb Hubble and pushed that tawdry rumor down, down, down on the list of prominence, thus pushing that name out of the news in this what has been our compendium of names in the news. 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 Names. Just assistant producer Corey Wara wanted me to get into finance minister Basil Rajapaksa. Sri Lanka's political and economic issues have landed the Rajapaksa family in hot soup. Just senior producer Joel Patterson hoped I would mention the current serving leader of Sri Lanka, Ranil Wickremesinghe. The former United National Party member of parliament has assumed office for the sixth time. Michelle Pesca runs the front office there at Peachfish Productions. And she was wondering, is there a way that Gotabaya and Ioma, Mrs. Rajapaksa, could have fled other than a plane? Using an anagram of both their first names, she came up with the answer, yeah, a boat, amigo. We promise not to do more anagram games in the future. The Gist is produced in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com slash thegist. Oomperoo, jeeperoo, dooperoo, and thanks for listening. <laughs>